This is the second week of our Covenant series, and uh, I don't know about you, but I am so excited uh, as we finish this series here in the next few weeks. Um, but I want to give us a recap of what we talked about last week, and that is, last week we discovered from Genesis chapter 15 that as God enters into covenant with Abram, who later becomes Abraham, uh, we find out that God is relational. He's a relational God. He loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He isn't just a cosmic force. He isn't a vending machine where we can put faith coins in and get our results out. He is a relational God who desires relationship. And so I just uh, want you to know that we did that first because that's foundational to this entire series. If we're, gonna, if we're going to understand the covenant, we have to understand that God is a relational God uh, and that he loves you and he loves you deeply. And so what I want to do today in the second week of this series is I want to walk us through the steps of a covenant. And remember that we said a covenant is an all-encompassing agreement between two parties with clearly outlined obligations and then expectations. In other words, a covenant implies meaningful relationship. That's what separates it from a contract. A contract is just a piece of paper where you and I, we got to do what it says. But if we enter into covenant with one another, then we're actually entering into relationship with one another. And that's why we call our members here covenant partners. We don't just call them members. We call them covenant partners because we are entering into an agreement together for the cause of the kingdom of God in Fort Collins and around the world. We're entering into covenant with one another. In other words, we're entering into relationship with one another, the church and the people. Does that make sense? That's where we were last week. And so today I want to talk to you about the steps of the covenant that in ancient culture, this is what people had to go through, the ceremony by which they would enter into covenant with one another. And then once we have that established, I am going, I, I, I hope that where we go from there today, after we get those steps down, I hope that it will blow you away in the same way that it has blown me away. I want to share this information with you because this information today has absolutely had a profound impact on my life. And I am praying and hoping that it will have an impact on your life as well as we do this. Now, I want to say right up front that the information that I want to share with you today is uh, way too much to ever try to cover in one, in one message. And I don't even know why I'm trying it, except I just want you to get the whole big picture, right? And, and so it is going to be information overload. Are you guys ready? Can you handle some biblical information overload? We got one person in the front row that's ready. Are you guys ready to hear the word of God and understand the covenant? Yes, that's what we like to hear. Okay. Now, the modern day equivalent to the covenant, and when we think about covenant, is the marriage, right? The wedding. And in order for this couple to enter into covenant with one another, they're entering into meaningful relationship where they both have responsibilities, they both have obligations, but they also receive mutual benefit from that relationship, this covenant of marriage. Whenever you go to a wedding, you see some pretty familiar things, don't you? Like everybody exchanges vows. Everybody exchanges rings. Everybody has the, the dad comes up or the closest of kin and gives the, the, the wife or the, the bride away, right? There's all these kinds of things that when we, we have a couple of people that are entering into the covenant of marriage that we know what to expect, right? 
And uh, some of you love weddings because it reminds you of your wedding day. Some of you hate weddings because it reminds you you're not married. Right? And, you, you know, we, love, we have a love-hate relationship with weddings. But the reality is, is that when we go to a wedding, we know what to expect. There are certain steps that they're going to walk through. Does that make sense? In the same way, when two people are entering into covenant in the ancient culture, they had to walk through some steps to solidify that covenant. And I want to go over those with you today. And uh, I want to start just by giving you uh, the the sheer just kind of information of what that means. And then uh, we're going to talk about how that has an impact on our lives today. Because the, the, the temptation would be, is to say, what in the world does, does their covenant-making ceremony have to do with you and I? And I believe it has everything to do with you and I. So let's talk about it. So these two people, let's pretend, are entering into covenant with one another. And uh, they've, they've had these clearly outlined uh, parameters of the covenant, of what they're supposed to do. The first step in, in solidifying that covenant and entering into that covenant together is they would exchange robes. Now, the robe in the ancient culture is the outer garment. And so what the, what you might ask, well, what in the world is that all about? And, and it's, they exchange robes in order to symbolize that their identities are now confused. They're now merged. In other words, if I were to take off my outer coat, my, my sweet cardigan. <laughs> cardigans are back in style. Can you believe it? You can call me Mr. Rogers, and I'm not offended. You call me Mr. Rogers, and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'm cool. So let's say that I exchange my cardigan. Who else has a cardigan on today? Is JD here? Where are you at, JD? Oh, very, yes, yeah, there he is. JD, so you don't have to actually, you don't have to come up here. You don't have to come up here. But I just want to point you out, that's a very good-looking cardigan, J.D. If you and I were entering into covenant partnership together, I would trade my cardigan with your cardigan. So that the, and the idea here is that we're confusing our identities. So if you were to see me walking up, you'd be like, isn't that J.D.'s cardigan? Right? But instead, it's really me. Right? And if you were to see J.D., you'd be like, that's Andy's cardigan. It's a little big on J.D. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a little big on JD, but the idea is that you would our identities would be fused and confused. Does that make sense? And so they would switch their outer robes, their outer garment. That's the first step of the covenant making ceremony. Now the second step is what they would do is they would actually exchange belts. Uh, they would exchange belts. Now, this isn't all having to do with clothing, but it starts there. They would exchange belts because the, the belt was sort of this symbol and this, this, uh, this personification of my strength. And so in ch- exchanging my belt with my covenant partner, I would actually, we would be saying that we are exchanging our strengths. That whatever I'm bringing into this partnership, whatever strengths that I have are now your strengths as well. Because our identities are merged, they're confused because we've exchanged robes. And so now we exchange belts so that whatever I bring into this partnership is now available to you. Now we have a running joke in our household. Because when, we got, when Amy and I got married, I was still a college student, which means I had uh, a couch that I dug out of the trash and a lava lamp, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, amen, right? 
And Amy, she was out of college, was living on her own, so she had begun to buy things to make a household. So when we got married, I brought my lava lamp and my couch from the trash, and she said, thank you very much, we don't need your strengths. (laughs) And she said, but in order to make a household, we do need all of these things that I bring in, that I've brought into the marriage, into this relationship. And so we have a running joke that even 10 years after marriage, sometimes she'll look at me and she'll say, now tell me again, what did you really bring into this relationship? (laughs) Right? That's, oh, that's right. That's cold. I want to let you all know because I need a support group (laughs) for that. I need a support group for that. But in other words, all that she brought to the relationship was now mine. All of a sudden, I had pots and pans and, and furniture and all these other great things to make a household. And I'm like, where's the surround sound system? Didn't you bring that into the relationship? Right? And so we, what she brought in and what I brought in is now together it's ours. So that's, that's essentially the meaning of we've exchanged belts. We're exchanging strengths. Whatever you bring into the relationship is now into this partnership is now ours together. The third thing they would do, and this is actually, they would do this in one step, but it would have multiple meanings because on their belt would have been their weapons. And so the third step was they exchange weapons. And the idea here is that as we exchange our belts and as we exchange our weapons, your enemies are now my enemies. In other words, this is an ancient way of saying, I got your back, right? I got your back. If you're messing with Amy, you're messing with me, right? If you're messing with me, you're messing with Amy because we're covenant partners. And so it's I've got your back, this idea of we've exchanged uh, weapons. We've exchanged weapons. Now, uh, what becomes really interesting, now we're going to talk about that later. Never mind. So we exchange weapons. And we, we make a decision then as we exchange enemies is to protect each other from harm. So that's the symbol there. We're exchanging weapons. Your enemy is now my enemy. We're protecting each other from harm. We've got each other's back. Does that make sense? So we've exchanged robes, belts, and weapons so far. Now the third thing, and this is what we see in Genesis chapter 15, or the fourth thing actually, is that they would have a sacrifice. They would take a clean animal. Uh, this is, remember in Genesis 15, when, when Abram is like, how will I know that this promise this, that you've uh, made on my behalf, how do I know that it's going to come true? And God says to, to Abram, he says, go get a heifer and a ram and a goat and these lambs and make sure they're clean and all this kind of stuff, right? You remember that? What they would do in the covenant-making ceremony is after they've exchanged their outer clothing and their belts and their weapons, they would actually get sacrifice an animal that is declared clean because because of the next step. So the next step then, after they make that sacrifice, is what's called the walk of death. Now, we don't make our covenant partners do a walk of death. But in the ancient culture, that's what they would do. They would split this animal in half after they sacrificed this this animal deemed clean. And then they would walk through the sacrificed animal. They would walk through the blood of the sacrificed animal in what they called the walk of death. And this essentially is a symbol of that. As I enter into covenant partnership with you, I am dying to myself. I'm giving up any personal rights that I have, and together we're forging forward. In other words, it's this idea that not only are our our identities confused by the exchange of robes and outer garments, but that now our identities are 
fused together. I cannot think of myself outside of partnership with my covenant partner. And so I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to my individual rights. And I'm taking this walk of death to fuse my identity to my covenant partner. Does that make sense? Don't worry. It gets grosser. Okay? Don't, some of you are like, I would never be in covenant with anyone. Right? Because check out this next step. The next step was, is called the striking of hands. This is step number six. The striking of hands. Because what, what would happen is, is that they would place a mark on the body, usually the wrist, and they would place their, their cut wrists together in order to mingle blood with their covenant partner. Now, we don't make our covenant partners do that either. But they would mingle their blood together. And the, the idea here is that, that it leaves a permanent mark. And a lot of historians believe that this is where the, the wave, the universal wave came from. Because it would display their covenant mark. And so as I wave with someone, I'm displaying that I am already in covenant with someone else. Right? And so the, the, it leaves this permanent scar. They mix their blood together. And it leaves this permanent mark. Of I am in covenant with someone else. That's where the wave, a lot of historians agree, that's where the wave came from. So they would strike their hands together. And then they would, step number seven is the pronouncement of blessings and curses. And this is where they would really nail down the outlines of, of the covenant that they are making together. And what they are to do and the obligations. And then the pronouncement of blessings and curses would say, Blessed are you and your family and your children and your livestock and your household and all your possessions. Blessed shall all these things be if you keep the covenant. But then the curse is they would say to each other, cursed shall you be and cursed shall your family and your possessions and your household and your descendants. Cursed shall they all be should you not uphold the, the parameters of this covenant. This is serious stuff, right? They're striking, they're, they're mixing their blood, and then they're pronouncing blessings and curses over one another. Powerful, powerful stuff. And then the second thing, or sorry, the eighth thing, second, wow, I missed it there, right? The eighth thing is, that, is the covenant meal. And at the covenant meal, the covenant partners would, would feed one another, and they would say that as you ingest this food, you are in fact ingesting me. That as you eat this food, you are in, ingesting, you are eating my very being. Um, you are, in other words, the, now, now that sounds weird, right? I mean, some of you are like, nope, not doing that. What's, what's happening here is, is that it's a symbol of you are taking me into your life. You're taking me into your life is the, is the strong symbolism there. Now, again, many historians agree that uh, this has something to do with why the husband and the bride, uh, the bride and the groom, feed each other in a wedding. Right? And, and, and Amy and I made a covenant together that we would not shove it in, in each other's face. And lo and behold, Amy shoved it in my face. I was nice and properly feeding her. Didn't want to get her dress dirty. Boom! Right there it came, right? So. 
I'm not, I'm not bitter. I want you to know I'm not. <laughs> and so a lot, of, a lot of historians agree this is where we get this idea of the wedding and feeding each other. Because the, the, the covenant partners would say, as you eat this food, you are indeed taking my very being into your life. And then the ninth step. The ninth step is they would exchange names. So partners would combine their names together. And uh, so if, if Zach and I are entering into covenant together, then my name would be Andy Kreider Lucas or Andy Lucas Kreider. And his name would be Zach Kreider Lucas, right? And so we are exchanging names together. Uh, so that all by the end of that, the, the f- sort of final step, would be this exchange of names. Because we've already fused our identities together. We've confused our identities by switching the outer garments. We've said, I've got your back. Uh, we've pronounced the blessings and curses and all of this kind of stuff. And, and it's then they enter into this covenant together. Pretty interesting stuff, right? And some of you are like, that's a great history lesson. What difference does that make? What I want to spend the rest of our time this morning with is what I believe to be foundational to the faith, and yet it is something we just never hear about. And that is the reality that Jesus Christ himself has walked through every single one of these steps on our behalf so that we may be in relationship. In fact, we may be in covenant with him. And as we'll we'll learn, he has sealed the covenant uh, on a single side. He has walked through it all so that even if we don't perform perfectly, even when we mess up, the covenant is still intact because of all that Jesus Christ has done to walk through these steps of the covenant for us and on our behalf so that we may know him so that we may be in relationship with him and so that we may find victory in this life and in Jesus Christ. We may overcome addiction. We may find hope in the midst of hopelessness. We may heal from the hurts of life. All of these things have, are, are a result of the fact that Jesus has walked through these steps on our behalf. And I want to show it to you. Because it is amazing to see the evidence in Scripture that is actually covenant language. That unless we understand these steps, we'll never know. We'll never get a hold of, of, we'll never realize that these are in fact covenant. This is in fact covenant language that is being said. And so let's start back at the beginning. Who knows what the very first step was? Anybody? The exchange of robes, the exchange of outer garments, right? And the idea here is that our identities would be confused. Is that JD or is that Andy? I don't know. That's a cardigan. Who's wearing whose cardigan, right? I don't know. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The outer garment that you and I wear is sinfulness. It's on our sleeve practically. I mean, we can't, we're just, we are bent toward sin. But the outer garment of Jesus Christ is righteousness. He is sinless. He is perfect. There is no sin found in him. And yet the truth of the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, is that Jesus Christ switched garments with us. He took on our sinfulness so that we might take on his righteousness so that whatever righteousness we have in this life is not a righteousness that is our own. It is a righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ who has 
himself taken on our sinfulness. He switched garments. Isn't that amazing? Phenomenal truth that you and I don't have to live in our brokenness. We don't have to live in our sinfulness because Jesus Christ has entered into covenant with us and sealed it one-sided so that we may take on his righteousness. That we no longer have to live in our sinfulness. It is an amazing truth of the gospel that when God looks at you, for those of you that have placed your faith in the, in the sinless and perfect Lamb of God, He does not see your outer garment, which is brokenness, but rather He sees the, the righteousness of Christ Himself. That you may be called and made white as snow. And I want you to know that a lot of times what we get in this church is that this is just a sin covering. That the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has simply covered our sin, sort of blinded God to it. But the reality, the truth of the gospel as Jesus switches garments with us is that it does not just, it does not just cover our sin, it cleanses our sin. So that we may live in victory. And that's not to say that we're going to live perfectly all the time. And that's not to say that we're not going to mess up, but that is to say that it is possible to experience victory in this life through Jesus Christ, who has himself died for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. He has switched garments. Now, the second one is the exchange of strengths. All that I bring into this covenant partnership is available to me. And if God is entering into covenant with us, This ought to be phenomenal truth to us that the strength of God as our covenant partner is made available to us. That in this life, we have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can live in us. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul declares, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. So that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, that's when I am strong. Because Jesus Christ has entered into covenant with us and he's walked through all these steps on our behalf. We bring weaknesses to the relationship and the partnership. God brings his strength so that when I am weak, it is an opportunity for God's strength to be displayed in my life. And sometimes that comes about in miraculous healing where the power of God is so evident in our lives and it comes through in our lives. And some of you may say, but God doesn't always heal. And I know that. I live in the real world. I have a family too that suffers from from not being healed from time to time and I understand that but I also recognize that the reality of the power of God is that even in the midst of those times when things don't go the way we would have it we have the power of God to overcome those we have the power of God to heal from those hurts we have the power of God so that good may come out somehow come out of that that, horrible situation that's the power of God in our lives And so in your weakest moment, may I encourage you today, because Jesus Christ has walked in covenant with you, all we have to do is respond to him and enter into covenant because of that truth. If you are feeling at your weakest moment today, 
it is an opportunity for God to display his greatest strength in your life. And may we declare with Paul that when I am weak, then I am strong through Christ. He exchanges the belts and the strength. Now, the second thing is the exchange of weapons. And, and, and the, remember, we talked about the exchange of enemies. And you might say, we've got we to understand whose enemy is who. Well, according to, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the God's enemy is, in fact, Satan. And according to, to Romans 6.23, our enemy is death. And so as we enter into covenant together, God has switched enemies. Our enemies become each other's enemies. And so what we see happening is this incredible truth that, that our enemy does not become primarily death because Jesus has, has already defeated death. Through the cross, by dying and then being resurrected, death is defeated. And through relationship with him you, him, you and I no longer have to experience death. And right now our enemy is the evil one who seeks to derail all that God is doing in our lives. God took on our enemy death and he defeated it through the resurrection. And now you and I must, must work against the evil one. But we're not on our own. Right? According to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, it's the armor of God passage. The armor of God, we're given all of these things. The breastplate, the belt, all of these things, right? And then it says, so that we may withstand the devil. So I want you to know that as the devil attacks you and he tries to derail all that God is doing in your life, we've exchanged enemies, but we've also combined enemies. God has your back. God has your back. And he has given us these tools so that we may overcome and withstand the evil one and his work in our life. Christ took on our enemy death and he defeated it. And then we are tasked through God's power to defeat the devil and to protect God's name. And to protect God's name. Listen, and when you're in your workplaces, when you're at school, in your classrooms, may you speak well of God because he has a bad reputation. And so may you uphold the name of God. May you honor the name of God. May you display honor, not just with your words, but with your actions. So that his name would be made famous and upheld and glorified and given honor. That's what we are tasked to do. The exchange of weapons. Now the sacrifice. Remember in the Old Testament they had to find a clean animal. A spotless animal to sacrifice and go through the walk of death. And of course we know that the sinless Lamb of God becomes the sacrifice for all. It's interesting if you read Hebrews, and I would encourage you to read Hebrews. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Because Hebrew outlines that, that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies each and every year and would offer these sacrifices. And he would have to do it again and again and again. But the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is a preacher, so I like him. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ did not... Just officiate the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice himself. The once and for all sacrifice. So that no one needs to be sacrificed any longer. We must simply appropriate the sacrifice of Christ into our lives. That we may know him. 
And so listen, listen to this, Hebrews chapter 9, 25 through 24. Near, nor did he enter into heaven to offer himself again and again. He, that is Christ, the way that the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of, all, of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as people are destined to die once and after that may face to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear again to, a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We ask, what in the world does this, the per, this person's death have to do with anything for us today? The sacrifice of Christ itself is an act of covenant to us. A way of Christ binding himself and joining himself to us to demonstrate his love for us. Powerful stuff. Now, the walk of, uh, the walk of death, I told you this is too much to cover in a single message. So I'm trying to go fast. Am I going too fast? No. Okay. You guys are sharp. Right, walk of death. Now, remember the purpose of the walk of death was to die to myself, to, to not even begin to think, I can't, to come to a place in the covenant ceremony where I can't even think of myself outside of covenant partnership with this, this person who I'm in covenant with. And, and, and it's really interesting because what we hear Jesus say is, is similar to this. Having the sacrifice of Christ or looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, Jesus says to, his, says to folks, his disciples in Luke chapter 9, he said to them all, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. It's covenant language that Jesus is saying. And he's saying, as I'm walking to the cross, as I'm becoming the sacrifice for you, you need to know that the walk of death is right up the corner. And so if you want to be in relationship with me, you have to die to yourself so that you and I are going together. So that you and I are in covenant with one another. And that sounds so intimidating and so scary. But the reality is that based on the rest of the covenant, We know that God is relational. We know that God has made his strengths available to us. We know that God has has exchanged enemies and has said, I've got your back. Why wouldn't we die to ourselves so that we can merge our identities with this person who has all these things? A lot of people just say, you know, if I I come to know Christ, my, my, my life will be forever different. That's true. Some people are, are, are scared that he's going he's to mistreat you in some way. And I would simply say to you that when you give your life purely over to God, holy to him, he is making a covenant with you. His strengths are available to you. He's got your back against the enemy. It's a beautiful kind of relationship. So it's also this idea that my identity is forever blended with Jesus Christ. Now the next step, step number six, is this helpful to you? I tell you these truths, we could take one week and just walk through this for, for nine or ten weeks. Uh, but I want to give it all to you. Because um, I believe that as we see it in the big picture, we realize the, the depth and the breadth of God's love for us and all that he has done to be in relationship with us. And I have got to hurry. Okay. 
I need the micro machine man. You guys know micro machines? I'm a child of the 80s. Somebody help me out. Three of you know what I'm talking about. That's all right. I need the guy that talks at the end of the car commercial on the radio. We better now? I need that guy that talks really fast. Here we go. The step number six is the striking of hands. Remember, this is a permanent mark on the body where it comes the wave. Now, what happens is that in the new covenant, the new covenant of Christ, we move away from this, this permanent mark, this mark of circumcision and this mark on the wrist, and we move to the circumcision of the heart. Where, where the, it says that uh, in Hebrews that he's making a, a better covenant where the law will not be written on stone, but the law will be written on our hearts. And, and so what Paul is talking about, the same truth in Romans chapter 2 says, a, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. And such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. In other words, what matters in the new covenant is that when we enter into relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't receive a physical mark on our physical bodies. We receive the circumcision of the heart or the fleshly or the worldly part of our heart that desires sin first and foremost is peeled away so that God so that we can more perfectly live inside the, the covenant of God. Now I said more perfectly. I didn't say perfectly, right? I don't want any of you to come away and say, well, I'm not doing this thing perfectly. And so now I'm guilty. No, that's not the message. The message is that the Holy Spirit works in our lives, forms our hearts more and more into likeness of him. And so this is the reality of the circumcision of the heart. It is a covenant language that that now becomes the mark by which we operate in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I love this second part. Can you tell that I like this? If you guys don't even like it, at least I'm having fun. Thank you for coming to my party, right? <laughs> so here it goes. Remember, uh, the step number seven, the pronouncement of blessings and curses. Now, in the ancient world, the, the penalty... For not upholding a covenant was death. And then the curses. Cursed shall you be through death. And then cursed shall your whole household, your possessions, and your descendants. Because you did not keep the outlines and the parameters of this covenant. And so we come to that and we're like, uh uh-oh, right? And then on the flip side, if you do keep these covenants, then blessed shall you be. And your home, and your children, and your possessions, and all of these things. Now, check this out. In in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it talks about us being a child of God, and and thus being His heir, an heir of God. In other words, we get to share in the blessings of Christ. We get to share in the blessings of Christ. It says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so there is this reality that as we walk in accordance with, with, uh, with the ways of God and the will of God, we experience the blessing of God on our lives. We are co-heirs with Christ, children of God. And the flip side of that is... Man, if you don't, right, we would expect to be cursed and to die in punishment. But this isn't the old covenant. It's the new covenant. Hebrews says it's the better covenant. Because check out what happens. Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus became the curse 
for us. The blessing is passed on to the covenant partners. But the curse is not. Because the curse has already fallen on Christ himself. Who died for that sin. And then was resurrected. Does that make sense? It's powerful, powerful stuff. Now remember Genesis chapter 15. We looked at that last week. And right as they're getting ready for the walk of death. What happens to Abram? The scripture says that he falls into a deep sleep. And then a smoking fire pot representing the very presence of God or the pre-incarnate that is the word of God before he's made flesh in the New Testament that is the word of God walks the walk of death on Abram's behalf. And as we're walking the walk of death we're taking on the responsibility of the blessings and curses. And so as Abram who does not fulfill the covenant perfectly the curse of that has already fallen on the smoking fire pot, Christ before he's incarnated. Now, I know that that's a lot, of, a lot of theological language, but I just want you to understand that Jesus Christ has become the curse for you and I. That we, know, we do not have to pay the penalty of death. As we fail to walk perfectly in the will of God, that sin, that brokenness, that curse has already fallen on Christ himself. That as he walked that walk of death in the Old Testament, uh, Christ takes on the sin of Abram and the sin of the world, and he dies for us. The blessing is passed on, but the curse is not. Isn't that powerful? Now, the eighth step is the covenant meal. And partners would feed each other, and as you ingest this food, you're taking my very being into your life. Listen to John chapter 6. Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so that the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down from heaven. And your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And just previous to that, Jesus has stated, I am the bread of life. Now on the surface, this sounds kind of weird and kind of cannibalistic, right? People come to that passage and they're like, whoa. Right? We don't want any part of that. The idea here is this is covenant language. Jesus is talking about the covenant meal. That as you eat this food that we remember in communion, you are in fact taking Jesus into your life. And he says, and if you will eat a regular diet of this food, of me, then you will live. It's this powerful kind of symbolism. When, when we take communion, we don't believe that, that, that this bread literally becomes the, the flesh of Christ or that this juice literally becomes the blood of Christ. We believe that these are simply symbols by which to remember this covenant meal that Jesus has called us to. That when we feed on the way of Jesus, we will have eternal life. This passage is all about covenant language. Powerful, powerful symbolism. Now... The ninth one. There are ten, by the way, but I'm only giving you nine today. We're going to save step number ten for the last week. Um, it's going to be great. 
exchanging names. Remember when in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Abraham is Abram and Sarah is Sarai. But in Genesis chapter 17, God says to them, No longer shall you be called Abram, but you will be called Abraham. And I think I said this last week, but, but God's name is Yahweh. And so by Abram moving to Abraham, he's taking on a piece of God's name. And he says to, to Sarai, your name will no longer be Sarai, but your name will be Sarah, taking on the very name of Yahweh. And you say, well, I thought they were exchanging names. Surely God is not called Abraham. Oh, he is called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If you move that point forward in the New Testament, God continually refers to himself and is referred to as the God of Abraham, as the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God himself takes on the name of his covenant partners. And you may ask, well, how in the world does that play out in the New Testament? Well, you and I are called Christians. Christians. Those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ are referred to Christians. Christians. The Ians means those who are of Christ. We are carrying the name of Christ when we call ourselves a Christian. It is not something to be taken lightly, nor is it something that should be ignored. Because some people are, are, are saying, well, the Christianity and the word Christian has way too much baggage, so we should just abandon it and call myself a follower of Christ. Well, that's okay, but I would rather be called a Christian. And I'm not splitting hairs or anything, but the language of covenant language of us taking on Christ's name as those who are of Christ is powerful. And then in the New Testament, Christ refers to himself over and over and over again as the Son of Man. For he himself has taken on our name. And we bear each other's names because we have walked in covenant together. It's a powerful, powerful truth. Now you may recognize that we end all of our prayers, how? In Jesus' name. Why in the world do we do that? I don't know. I'm just supposed to. When I was little, my mom told me to fold my hands and say, in Jesus' name. Right? What's happening there is that itself is covenant language. Because as we say, in Jesus' name... We are saying that we are now operating under the power, under the authority of Jesus himself, our covenant partner. That as we place our faith in him, we are praying in Jesus' name, under the authority, under the the power of Jesus himself, we say, Amen. Which literally means, may it be so. So all of our prayers are ended in the power and authority of Jesus. May it be so. You and I need to pray a little more boldly, don't we? We need to pray a little more audaciously because we are praying in the power and authority of Jesus' name. May it be so according to his will. And so I would, I would encourage, this, this message is for me more than anybody. I need to pray more audaciously. I need to pray more boldly. Because I don't want to pray some, some weak, sissy prayer and then pray it in Jesus' name. Right? I want to pray a bold prayer that, that calls on the authority and the power of Jesus himself. 
I want to pray prayers that say, Jesus, if you don't come through right now, I'm sunk. So in your name, in your power, in your authority, may it be so. And I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not Pentecostal. And some of you are. And you're like, I know what that looks like, right? But I would just, I would hope that as we pray, we pray boldly. And we boldly approach the throne of God as we pray in Jesus' name. Because every time you and I say that, we are calling on covenant language. We're reminding ourselves of the covenant that Christ has entered on our behalf. Now, I've preached way too long. And uh, what I, w- I want to close with, with this idea. If Christ would go through all of that, my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would not doubt the love that God has for you. Because he has done so much to walk in this covenant for us. He has died on your behalf. He has become the sacrifice himself. He has made available to us his very strength. He has defeated death on our behalf. He has chosen to take on the curse himself and pass on the blessing. So if you're here today and you feel like you don't know that God loves you, may I tell you on the authority of the word of God that God deeply loves you. That Jesus is a relational God. He desires to be in relationship with you. And he has done all of this that we've talked about today. So that he can be in relationship with you. For he loves you. And he has decided that he is going to take on your sinfulness. So that you may experience his righteousness. So may we all together today call on the covenant power of Jesus Christ who has sealed, signed, and delivered the covenant so that you and I must only respond.